With great art, your head is not involved at all. Your brain is no part of it. Your heart responds to it. And we need people to have that kind of attachment towards the Bitcoin philosophy and, and everything that it, it could do. This is the Bitcoin Muse, and I'm Clay Enos. This week, I tumble in conversation with Gareth Eckley, a jewelry designer, a gemstone carver, metalsmith, and an inspired Bitcoin artist whose precious art objects can be found at artofsatoshi.com. Gareth and I mine a range of topics, from eliciting emotional responses to art and the molecular structure of opals to the stark dichotomies of modernity and potential new forms of charity. All of it set amidst his ongoing understanding of Bitcoin and polished by his breadth of experience. Be sure to follow Gareth on Twitter and Noster as you listen to our chat and to share, rate, and subscribe to the Bitcoin Muse. Any support you can show me brightens my day. Please share this podcast with your artist friends since that's who I'm trying to reach and corral. Any reposting of my Twitter or Nostra feeds is key in addition to using any podcasting 2.0 apps like Fountain or Breeze. Even though not many of you are listening on those platforms, perhaps I can entice you knowing that 10% of all those streams and boosts help OpenSats fund Bitcoin and other free and open source projects. And now, my conversation with Gareth Eckley. What happened that you were deciding to be a Bitcoin artist? My Bitcoin journey sort of started in 2017, and I saw it then as, oh, this is an investment, I can make some money. I was uh, seeing the charts and thinking, okay, let's get some Bitcoin. And, uh, and, and so I bought in September 2017, and then I was timing it. I was like, okay, we've hit the peak January 1st, I'm out, or January 2nd, whenever the market's open. And then I kind of forgot about it for a year or two, really. And then I started getting interested in it again around the time of the COVID lockdowns. Initially, I was looking at, you know, the people who were promoting, you know, trading or, you know, number go up. And then I started discovering far more interesting conversations out. So stumbled across um, Peter McCormack, what Bitcoin did, and then I listened to some of those. Had my first listen to Michael Saylor, and I was like, oh my God, there's a lot more to this than I was thinking. What I was finding was that I was listening to people and I was like, this is my tribe. I have almost no one around that I can have these kinds of conversations with. And people just don't want to have these kinds of conversations, these deep conversations about what is art, what is beauty, what kind of society should we have? How can we make the best of what we've got? How can we elevate others, raise others? And I was like, these people are, are like speaking to me and I want to speak to them. So I do say in the bio on my website that everybody has something to offer to Bitcoin. I am not a coder. I'm not a mathematician. I'm not an engineer. I've always worked with my hands to craft jewelry or to cut gemstones or to carve stones into shapes, patterns, portraits. And that's what I can do. And I realized through listening to quite a few people that there is a value in that. And I think the value is that the way the modern world is now, people need to have a feeling and a connection and an emotional attachment to something to want it to become, you know, like a cause or something. We're very much a culture that's driven by feelings and emotions and causes and being part of a tribe and a group. That's basically how our modern world is working. If you show the average person the white paper or the code or you talk about the math or all of this great stuff, they can't get it. They, you know, they can't grok it. It's not accessible to them. The one thing about art is artists have always been on the vanguard. Like great art basically provokes an emotional reaction in the person that sees it or experiences it if it's a performance thing or handles it if it's a physical thing. With great art, your head is not involved at all. Your brain is no part of it. Your heart responds to it. And we need people to have that kind of attachment towards the Bitcoin philosophy and, and everything that it, it could do if given a, a lot of luck and a good world and... You know, God willing and all that kind of stuff. 
the funny thing is, pretty much my whole life, I've been involved with making beautiful things out of gemstones and gold and creating an emotional attachment with the customer. And jewelry is, is like the ultimate for this. The first time you make your first engagement, you see the fiancé come to me, ask me to design a makeup for her and, and I'd make it. And, and you see the moment that goes on her finger, there's an emotional attachment. It's, it's transcended the physical piece. You take that piece to, say, a pawnbroker and he's just going to look at the scrap value and there's nothing there. There's no meaning, there's no attachment. But to that person, it's got the, all the meaning in the world. And so I, I started doing that work, jewelry designing. And then I discovered portrait work. Portraits are the, the zenith of personal attachments. There are so few people who can really evaluate if something is a good piece of art or not. But you do a portrait of them or their daughter or their son. They will know in half a second if they love it or they hate it. It's that binary. And with me, I, I actually carve, uh, well, for most of my life, probably 27 years now, I've been carving portraits onto gemstones to make modern style cameos. And somebody will send me a picture of, say, that loved one and say, can you carve this portrait onto the stone? I'll wear it around on a necklace around, around my neck kind of thing. And here are some photos of my daughter or something. And so... I would do that, carve that, and then the responses that I would get of that sort of, I cried and my family cried and so I'm emotional. I've been fortunate enough to be able to make something that creates a profound emotional attachment in a positive way to the people that receive it. And that has given my life a meaning. I'm creating things that will be around in hundreds of years, thousands of years, and they'll still be locked out, and someone might say, oh, no, I don't wonder who it is, kind of thing. Hardly anyone gets the opportunity to do that. You're absolutely right, and I can relate to that. As a photographer, you shoot your fair share of weddings. Yeah. And almost every single photograph that is presented has an emotional response, whether it's yes. good or not. Yes. It's kind of a lovely thing. I'll, I'll shoot your wedding any day if you're a friend yeah. of mine, because... I can't make a bad photograph, whereas in any other context, one in a thousand is good or used. Uh, you know, you said something at the beginning when you were first going down the rabbit hole and listening to podcasts and that you couldn't have conversations with people about these things that you cared about. Now, I imagine that much of your work is done alone or obviously you're working with clients. Yeah. You're in your own workshop working when this new idea, this Bitcoin world starts coming through your ears, there is that desire, right? It's the cliche of wanting to tell everybody yeah. <laughs> about this life-changing thing. But I think it's even more profound for artists because we run with this kind of uh, idealistic, we're making our dreams manifest on some level, right? We're creating things of beauty. So we're in daily contact with beauty. And now we see the ability to bring beauty, to stretch it way outside our workshops. Who were you first talking to when you had to talk? Um, I haven't really talked that much to people because I didn't want to be... Uh, most people you talked, I, I would say, do you know Bitcoin? Do you know about... And this, oh, oh it's, a, it's a scam or it's this or it's that. And, and I was like, I don't want to be the person that gives them financial advice and they go out and they spend all their life savings on this because of what I said to them. And we were at the top of the cycle and, you know, <laughs> they're at my door with pitchforks six months later. So, And understanding that you wouldn't want to give price predictions or if you did, and we all have some similar story, but more when you realized you needed to make art to support these bigger Bitcoin ideals. You had to go get a domain. Are you doing that yourself? Are you working with your kids? What was the process there? And was there a defining moment that said, I'm going to shift my focus towards Bitcoin objet d'art? Um, I've designed and built my own websites from the start. So the my main one, the portrait cameo one, the historical one. From the very start, I was coding out in HTML. And getting really excited when CSS came on the scene and trying to figure out 
how on earth to make that work and then how to make it work with Microsoft. And it was just like, <laughs> I am kind of someone, I think because I grew up on the farm, on the farm is like you did everything yourself. So you learn to do everything. If you're fixing a tractor or you're fixing a hydraulics or you're welding this or you're doing this or that. And so I do tend to do things myself. Often I'm doing things that I should be getting someone that was younger, brighter, and more switched on than myself to do for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know the feeling. I tossed in the towel at CSS. I love that you kept going. <laughs> well, I discovered WordPress and themes, and then it has gotten a lot easier. <laughs> there was something so delightful about view source and the early HTML. And just picking everybody else's code up and putting it into your own. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I just want to sort of set the scene. I can see you in your workshop doing these portrait cameos, listening to Svetsky and getting all fired up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then realizing you needed to do something. And going to buy uh, artofsatoshi.com was a coup. Yes. <laughs> it was there and I took it. I saw it lying on the ground and I was like, okay, I got that. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. You're putting it to good use. Yes. I, I want to hear more of that that transition. I just wanted to hear a little bit of those emotional decisions that took you from 40 years of proper, rather traditional cameos and objets d'art into being a Bitcoin artist and dedicating your energy there. Well, part of it was being a bit of a frustrated artist in that it's wonderful working with customers. But also, you're limited by the imagination of customers. So sometimes I suggest something that I thought, this is fantastic. This is what they want. And they just wouldn't go for it because it was outside their comfort zone. And I had watched a few people that I know get really into gemstone carving. One person I knew in, in Canada had gone over to Europe to train with some of the old masters in Germany and was doing really good work. And I thought, you know, I could do that. But I wasn't that interested in... It, it typically, it, it's, you know, you're carving a polar bear or you're carving an eagle or, you know, something like that. I was like, I don't want to spend a hundred hours still. It's got no meaning to me. And so I wanted to sort of make something that has meaning. Doing portraits for people, it has that meaning. But if I'm not doing that, what do I want to do? So it, there's no use just making pretty objects that have no substance there. And so from discovering, you know, going down the rabbit hole of Bitcoin and, and starting to learn about the changes that they can make, I was like, well, if I'm going to devote energy into something, this is where I should be putting it. But it wasn't really like a head decision, like, oh, I analyzed everything and this is what I should do. It was just like, right, I'm going to make something. I just, my hands wanted to make something or design or sketch something. So I, I remember there was one time I was supposed to be sketching a, a pendant for a customer. And instead, I just started sketching Bitcoin objects. Artem was like, oh. <laughs> And then four hours later, I was like, okay. <laughs> a possession. Yes, yes. And another thing that um, that happened, I'm, I'm a very visual person. I, I think in pictures. So when I think of something, it pops into my head and it's fully formed and I can move it around and edit. And then later on, my challenge is actually making that physically match the vision that I have in my head. That's the difficult part. Coming up with ideas is just so easy for me. It just happens. Another thing that would happen very often is I'd be inspired by tweets of others in space. The first piece that I made, the sort of Bitcoin spiral, was inspired by the rational loot. It was shared the vision of the price of Bitcoin over time Instead of a linear chart, it's a spiral chart. It spirals around the center. And there's two ways of doing it. You can spiral from the inside out, or you can spiral from the outside in. And most of the ones that I saw up until about a month ago, they were spiraling from the inside out. And then somebody shared one, which is sort of the back hole of Bitcoin, and it shows the price at the outside of the circle, and then spiraling down towards the center where everything basically falls into Bitcoin. And I'm like, okay, I've got, to, I've got to do something with that. You know, I can, I can instantly see what I can do with it. I think that was Jesse Meyer, right? Crocious. Yes. Yeah. I, I screenshots there. And, and one thing that I've done, whenever on website or a video that I've made, if I'm talking about something that I've done, I always give a credit and a screenshot of the original tweet 
that inspired me to create that piece. I don't want to steal someone's idea. Well, you know, good artists steal, but I want to give credit to, uh, you know, I thought of this because I saw that. So I've done four pieces that were auctioned at Scare Start City. The, the first one is the, I put so much work into the first one. It sort of encapsulates a lot of what I was thinking about this. Um, do, do you want me to describe it? I think it's easy enough for folks to go to the website. Yeah. And is, mm-hmm. it is the Bitcoin spiral, right? Yes. Yeah, that rational thing, yeah. root image. Yeah. So picture will save a thousand words on my part. Yes. We should contextualize, too, this whole idea of objet d'art and your inspirations. I think people know Fabergé eggs, René Lalique's work that Mm. at the time was avant-garde. Yes. These are your inspirations. There's this deep tradition of using the tools and the materials of jewelry, but to make things that are more sculptural, for lack of a better term. Yes. One of the Fabergé was well known for saying that he didn't care about the monetary value of the jewels that he used. He would sprinkle rose-cut diamonds into a piece just because they're more subtle than brilliant-cut diamonds, and he just felt it's more harmonious to do that. Jewelry had always been, well, for the longest time, it's associated with value. So it's, I want the most expensive diamond, whatever. René Lalique. It was just phenomenal. His work, there's two halves to René Lalique's career. He started as a jeweler, and then later on he went on to do glass work. And he's, he was superb at both. I, I think he was just the best in the world at his time in, in both, both sort of fields. Just, I, I can't get enough of his work. But yeah, there, there's this thing of you use the materials to create the design or the look that you want rather than it doesn't matter how much it costs and it doesn't matter what you sell it for. It's there to be a beautiful object that people just want to hold and touch and feel and connect with rather than I'm doing bling, I'm showing this great big rock on my finger. It's the exact opposite. That's pretty cool notion, right? Because if human adornment has been around forever, this was taking some of that vernacular in a sense and then making beautiful objects out of it yeah but removing the i don't know what is that the posturing that would come with jewelry i don't know how do you describe objet d'art um jewelry can be worn objet d'art can't be worn it's put on display it's in a cabinet or it's on a desk or it's on a plinth or something that's the difference between and you sort of focused on that with your bitcoin art that's what i'm working on Yes. Funny enough, when I started, I was like, I'm just doing the the pieces, the sculptural pieces. And then I was like, this is silly. I've spent 30 years making jewelry, 40 years. <laughs> I, I need to get a calculator to, to work it out. You know, it's been that long. I can make something that can be worn as well. So I've got a couple of pieces that uh, no one has seen yet where I bought some diamond crystals. I've got one that's a beautiful silvery gray diamond cube, about a centimeter size. And that's going to be positioned above. Um, it's a little sort of piece of trucy agate. So it's white crystals, quartz crystals inside a little curve sort of surface. And it has a couple of black crystals mixed in, in there. So when you put the, the dark silvery gray diamond on top of this, the black and the white, really just pick it up and you just want to turn it around. Oh my God, that's beautiful. So I'm going to be making a pendant or a necklace with that. And the other thing that inspires me now is I will look at examples of beautiful minerals or crystals or gemstones and I'll look and I think, ah, I can relate that to Bitcoin. One of the examples is rutilated quartz, which is a beautiful stone, which is golden needles of rutile, which is a titanium sort of mineral, grow at the same time as a quartz crystal grows from the melt liquid in the rock. They kind of grow together. So you get clear colorless quartz uh, suffused with all these rutile crystals. And sometimes you get a formation where they just crisscross each other. And I remember seeing a visualization 
Bitcoin Magazine did one on the Lightning Network. And I looked at that and I thought, well, that's Roosevelt Quartz. That's exactly what it looked like. And so that's one of the stones that is a foundation for me that I'm making pieces from that. And I've got to talk about Opal, if you have time, so. <laughs> yeah, so, go, go. I yeah. love it. It's really fun to think someone of your experience, 40 years plus, and across this huge domain of a very client-driven jewelry or, or objet d'art, and this massive database of stones in your head, really fun to try and map that encyclopedic knowledge and depth of experience onto something relatively or incredibly new by comparison yes. to 100 yeah. million year old stones. Yeah. So I'll tell you why Opal is the perfect Bitcoin. What I'm trying to do, and I guess I'm the only person out there doing this, is I'm trying to, there are certain gemstones that I think are Bitcoin gemstones. And they're basically Opal, citrine Quartz, Rutilated Quartz, Diamond, Garnet, Fluorite, Rainbow lattice sunstone from Australia, which is incredibly rare, and then lapis lazuli, and, and those are the main ones that have aspects of, of Bitcoin in, in their nature. Is opal because that's the October stone? Well, it is the October birthstone, uh, but the more important part about opal is uh, opal was a mystery for thousands of years. No one knew how it had its play of color, because... Uh, Opal is one of the commonest minerals out there. It's basically silica. And a lot of opal has a color or it's a dark gray, but there's no fire in it. There's none of this amazing player color that precious opal has. And then there's precious opal, which is completely different stone, which is one of the most spectacular stones in the world, which I fell in love with when I was about 14. Eventually, they had to invent the scanning electron microscope. And then somebody took a look at opal. And when they looked at potch, which is like opal with no play of color, they saw that it was made up of tiny spheres. So when all the spheres are different sizes and not arranged geometrically, you have no play of color. If it's allowed to form over time and it's undisturbed, it'll form layers of spheres and they'll stack on top of each other. But when you get that, an array of light hit the, hits the stone, it's refracted by each sphere in turn, which then interacts with the other sphere. And as you turn the piece, the light changes where it is on the stone. So you get different colors. So that's how you get the rainbow colors coming into opal. To do this, the spheres have to be identical in size and identically arranged in geometric sort of perfection. And I looked at that, and the first thing I thought was, well, that's a block. Every 10 minutes, the block is made, <laughs> and it stacks up. If you imagine a whole gigantic block of blocks of Bitcoin, and you put a ray of light through it, what would happen? You know, in my head, it's like, oh, that's what Opal is doing. So <laughs> I don't know if people will get that or not, but that's how I see it. They might not have until now, right? This yes. is <laughs> the artist's bane is to be alone yes. in your ideas until you put it out in the world. Yes, I, I should probably go and buy some opal right now before other people do. <laughs> <laughs> It'll make my aunt happy. It's one of her faves. She's an October baby. Mm -hmm. Well, that that's really cool. And and another lapis lazuli is is blue by my recollection, yes. right? Yes. How does that relate to Bitcoin? Well, in ancient Egypt, lapis lazuli represented the eternal heavens. So when they looked up at the sky at night, just before it gets really black, you've got that sort of gluey, dark blue color in the sky. Ah, yeah, beautiful. That's what they saw. And the golden flakes, which are actually pyrite crystals, in their kind of show stars against the blue background. So when I see lapis, I, I instantly think of ancient Egypt and how highly prized it was there. It's like the stone of the gods because of its eternal sort of showing the heavens. It's also a perfect foil for citrine. The, the other thing with citrine quartz is if you apply electricity to quartz, you create a vibration. And this is used to power quartz watches. Sure. So basically inside every quartz, there's a wafer of crystal. 
and it's cut so incredibly thin that the application of electricity from the, the battery makes it vibrate at a certain frequency. And they take that, run it through gates to halve it each time. And after about 11 gates or so, they get to exactly the correct frequency to drive a second hand, one time a second. Well, what more perfect analogy to Bitcoin using electricity to create time via blocks? Can you have the ports taking electricity to create time using using regular vibration? Yeah, it's really beautiful. It's kind of brings me to this debate of whether Bitcoin is an invention or a discovery. And when you put it into these gemstone terms, it leans towards discovery, doesn't it? Yes, I'm sort of classic with uh, with minerals and crystals in that I, I'm not into the oh the mystical powers, uh, the Reiki kind of crystal energies. I, I just don't get that. I don't really do magical thinking in my life, I think, from growing up on a farm. So they're so fascinating and beautiful for what they are that you don't need to add all these layers or other things onto them. But each to their own, people want to do that. That's great. I'm not going to publicly criticize anybody for doing anything like that. But. Indeed, to each his own. And your opinions and your understanding of these stones and your time working with them certainly lends credibility to your opinion. Think. The other gem I forgot to mention is tourmaline. Tourmaline is quite similar to quartz. It's a little bit harder. It's got a property that if you take a crystal of tourmaline and you rub it on your sleeve or something, it will attract, say, pieces of paper. So it, it's a fun thing to do. You get some like tissue paper. You, you cut up into tiny little fragments that spring from on your desk. Get a tourmaline crystal, rub it, hold it above. And they'll leap up off the table and come onto the tourmaline crystal and coat. That paper will coat it. And that's, uh, I'm actually using a special type of tourmaline called watermelon tourmaline to create laser eyes. So I've done a carving of Pepe and I kind of, I've struggled with Pepe because, <laughs> yeah, my whole life has been trying to make something beautiful. And I really struggle with the, you know, Pepe is not beautiful. <laughs> it's all these kinds of things. But I do kind of get the subversive feeling there and, and the message. And so I, I've done something that I'm calling an elegant Pepe or the Zena Pepe. So I basically got a Pepe carved and now I'm making a pair of sunglasses for him that are kind of modeled on like John Lennon's glasses. And I found some watercolor tourmaline and I'm going to be slicing that into two and make carve and polish it to make two lenses that will fit over his eyes. And watermelon tourmaline is a lovely pink red in the center with green on the outside. So it looks exactly as if you took a watermelon and sliced it in half. So that's laser eyes. So this Pepe is going to have removable glasses that you can put on. And I think the bridge is going to say hotel on that. And so you'll be able to put that onto Pepe to make him interactive. And I've also got a miniature Panama hat for him and a miniature Texas cowboy hat for him to wear. So just a bit of fun because I, I, I like, I think humor is so effective as a way of getting an emotional attachment out. That piece sort of stands out because, as you said, Pepe isn't your classically beautiful content. Yes. And yet, and beauty is the thing that you have been immersed in for 40 years yeah. and still guides you. I'd be curious of your opinion of the role beauty plays today for us as a culture and how, or how you see it playing out in culture. Yeah. Um, well, I think if you look at architecture and modern art, they kind of rejected beauty a long time ago as something archaic or they wanted to move away from it and, and every movement has to do this thing of breaking from the previous generation but they've kind of moved it down now you know with the the scatological kind of art that you see out there you know piles of poo and stuff like that <laughs> where the only emotion when you see that you could possibly have is shock and disgust and if disgust is the emotion you're going for you've gone all the way down the hierarchy of emotions that you could trigger from positive emotions 
down to really negative emotions. And you just, you can't go any lower than that. So I think that is rock bottom. And I, I mean, the next reaction for the next generation has to be to start going the opposite way, to start thinking, well, we should try and make something and people think, oh, that's gorgeous, that's beautiful. But there's a difference between beauty and I think something being pretty, which is really important. Yeah, help me flesh that out. <sighs> okay, I've carved portraits of many, many women and I respond to how they look and you see this inner beauty that they have. I remember doing a portrait of, of someone for her 80th birthday. And you have to put in every wrinkle, every laugh line, every fold, everything that's there. And that's beautiful. She's beautiful to me. It's real. It's honest. Now, if you look at, say, say somebody who's done an Instagram filter to make themselves AI kind of perfect. I look at that and I'm, I'm left completely cold. She's pretty, but there's no beauty there because it's not real. It's not honest. It isn't raw. You don't see a real person. I'd rather see what she looks like without the filter. And beauty doesn't have to be pretty. It can just be something that's honest and raw. You know, the most beautiful thing I ever saw in my life was my first son being born and then my second son being born. And they were, didn't look very pretty at the time. <laughs> and my wife didn't at the time but she looked beautiful to me so. uh, you're right yeah I've, I've got portraits of many of people and and time and again the favorite one is the wrinkled old lady yeah <laughs> seemingly a, a rare sight these days as everyone stretches themselves to brazil level yes yes i can't i can't watch the hollywood oscar steps <laughs> <laughs> I like that distinction very much. And I think, well, you and I are basically contemporaries mm. uh, and also very hands-on. I didn't grow up on a farm, but I love that we were both hacking away at HTML at the beginning and yeah. building our own websites <laughs> to this day. As you look at the next generation that is often done with some disdain and condescension, do you have hope? Oh, um, well, I have two young boys. Um, well, they're 23 and 22 now, and they're amazing young people. And so I certainly have hope with them. And, you know, hopefully we've raised them as well as we could, or I've instilled. We're unusual in that my wife and I have been together their whole lives, you know, and for a few years before they were born. So uh, she's an amazing, creative person and a great mother. And uh, I tried to do, you know, the sort of um, the male kind of guidance and role model. But one of the things that's been very important to me is, is um, I've tried to stay curious my whole life. So I know a lot of people that I used to sort of spend time with and I don't anymore because a lot of people my age are not curious. They're not hopeful. They don't care about the problems of young people or what they're going through. They're watching politics all the time and they're they're wrapped up in A against B or C against D or whatever, you know, and I just find that company sort of, we've almost got these two binary futures. We've got this dystopian sort of minority report kind of, you know, 1984 plus Brave New World plus plus the Hunger Games, or, or we've got the individual and the decentralization, and, and I, which Bitcoin is a leading example of. But I think that individual and decentralization is more powerful. I don't think the authoritarians can defeat the individual power. Like, for instance, I haven't watched mainstream media or had cable in over 20 years now. And occasionally when I'm at someone's place and they've got it on and commercials come on, I'm like, who watched this? Why? <laughs> Why are you doing this? No, it's horribly distracting no, stuff. It, it's like there aren't enough hours in the day to, to learn new things. And uh, Although I haven't said that, there are some things that I'm finding really difficult. Like uh, it took me forever to figure out how to get onto Nostra. And uh, I did manage to set up my own Bitcoin node 
but some of the the wallet stuff is just like oh yeah, I just I, I I ask my son okay you know and to him it's just like water it's, it's like air the deep breeze he can just do it like that and I'm struggling to figure this out or that out. <laughs> I really admire your curiosity and your initiative and uh, again I feel it very much like a, you're a kindred spirit out there. Even in your bio, when you spoke of not being a coder, I have a similar thing in mind for this website. Yes. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's fun to see a reflection. And so that hopefulness for your own family and this dichotomy that sits in front of us, how about as we look creatively towards not just your own endeavor, but towards these future generations as they embrace a creative life or those who do do you believe that beauty will reemerge, that it will start to be privileged? Ah, it's hard to think about that because now we've got the whole AI thing. So if you're an artist, are you going to spend hundreds of hours toiling away at something? Or are you going, what is an artist now? Is, is an artist going to be someone who can craft the best prompt to create the best, most beautiful or or amazing thing. You know, that's an art form I never saw coming up, but uh, it might be that there are people there who basically, yeah, you know, you toil away doing this or that, but I work on creating the best prompts to get create the best art. So it's, I work my hands and I, and that's what I'll do and I'll keep doing that till I drop basically or, or my hands don't work anymore or my eyes don't work or whatever. I think people will find a way, and they'll find a way using the tools that are available. If the great artists from the past were around now, would they be painted on canvas or would they be using AI to create something? You use what you've got, basically. Yeah, I think so. A photography, I had this conversation with Hack Zero, was a new technology and was dismissed because it was like a cheat to rendering the world that prior to photography's invention, you needed to know how to paint or, or sculpt or do something, right? And yeah. so it was thrown to the wayside, but of course, a century later, it's embraced fully as a fine art in certain circumstances. I wonder what the place of AI prompted art will be. I call them beauty engines, but I might have to modify that term because maybe it's pretty engines. <laughs> I don't know. That's my feeling about them is they don't seem real. Yeah, and maybe that could be just us being curmudgeons. No, they're, they're they're pretty images, but they're not they're not real. Yeah, they're not real, and yet Bitcoin's not real, right? I mean, if we're going to just sort of be yeah. uh, short about it, and yet it's profoundly transformative for humanity if it works, as it works. I'm an optimist. Yeah, and so I think we are going to be awash in beautiful or pretty things. But I think we'll still value the hundred hours you've spent at the bench. Yeah. That will still take precedence in terms of what we value. Well, I think... Um, Feel free to argue, by the way. This doesn't have to be friendly. <laughs> no, no. The, there's one thing. Um, oh, do you know uh, the work of Rothko? Of course. Yeah. And um, do you like Rothko or do you not like him? I will say that I appreciate it, but I wouldn't go out of my way to see his work in a museum. Yes. Yes. See, see, I'm the opposite, sort of. I need to see something in person in front of me. And if it starts causing an emotional reaction in me, like my heart is like beating or the skin's crawling or something, you know how things go up the back of your neck? Sure. Then I know, okay, that's great art. And you can't tell that from a picture on a screen, you know, an, an image. This is a photograph of a Roscoe. In art college, I argued that it was crap, absolute crap. All these just squares on a canvas, what a load of crap. Anyone can, you know, a kid could do that. You know? Yeah, smudgy squares at that. And then I saw them in person and just spent time there. And uh, there's actually a YouTube uh, series called, I think it's Great Art Explained, and they spend 15 minutes talking about artists. So they'll do Van Gogh and all the classics, impressions, futurists, and, you know, Picasso, people like that. And their modern art has been quite eye-opening to 
because I was like, oh, I, I don't know about the Rothko. And, and then, but when I saw Rothko in London, stood in front of it, I was like, something about this is just like you're kind of falling into it and feeling, I didn't feel happy. I felt kind of tense and just on edge kind of looking at it. And I was like, and I completely forgot about it because it's like 30 years ago that sort of. And then I watched this this YouTube video and he talked about how he you know, was really depressed, really depressed person. And but how he layered, like if it's a red square on a white back canvas background, it's not one coat of paint. He's been layering it on and on and on. And a process I I, I can't remember whether it took months or weeks or something, but slightly different shades. Bit of maroon hue, bit of mimic, bit of crimson, and layering and brushing them on to create this sort of thing. And I realized that the depth and complexity he put in there. So I could be getting fanciful here, but my feeling of tension and kind of slightly sad and depressed watching one, that's how he was in life. So was that being transmitted across? Like, I don't know, don't know the answer to that, but it wasn't until I researched more about him that it revealed something at the start. Well, yeah, and I found that in general, art history was such a revelatory subject because it brought such deep context to all these things I'd seen before yeah. to allow me to appreciate them more. Yes, so, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Seyfedean's complete dismissal of modern art and actually, he sort of throws Rothko particularly under the bus. Yes. It always rubbed me the wrong way for that reason. Yeah. Anything, when properly researched and explored, is far more nuanced. And, and in every generation, there's half a dozen greats who are doing phenomenal stuff. And there's an awful lot of other people who are just copying other, other concepts or whatever. So every generation is doing something amazing. You just have to look at it with new eyes or do some research or try and figure it out. Kind of what I love about what you're doing is that you have taken 40 years of experience and been inspired by this modern marvel, so to speak, in Bitcoin and racking your brain to find creative voice given your skill sets. I mean, even that spiral with the using the curve in a logarithmic right graph. Yeah. I mean, Everything in your work has a story and a piece that you might not notice, kind of like a Rothko, right? But with explanation and with further study, you realize there wasn't a single decision made without deep contemplative forethought. Yes. Yes. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. I think we've got a lot here. And once I... Yes, we have. Compress it. I could do this all over again next week for another <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna have a rabbit hole recap with Gareth. <laughs> I I know you, you your last podcast you were you were asking for recommendations of people to possibly interview and uh, I appreciate yes. that very much. Not only do I appreciate you listening and sharing recommendations, but I I think that that's the fun of this community is it's so supportive of one another. Yeah. The ego has been subsumed. And also, unbelievably eclectic kinds of art being made. We're not in a dark ages, <laughs> where it's just all a bunch of gold leaf Jesuses. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's, it's interesting that because um, prompted by something that Madex said, was, can we get away from just putting the Bitcoin B on everything? And you know, my first two pieces did have the Bitcoin B on, and the fourth one as well. And uh, the third one that was for the auction for uh, Hoddle Nord to support his legal funds didn't have the Bitcoin beyond. So, so now I, I've been thinking, okay, that, that's a challenge. Let's see if we can get concepts across in a more subtle way. And um, one thing I, I'm sort of looking into now, I usually do a lot of research before I come up with some designs. And so I think to date, a lot of the, the Bitcoin art has been about Bitcoin itself. And I'm wondering if there's an avenue to do Bitcoin art about the effect it has on people. The most powerful thing that I got with Bitcoin really quickly was 
if you want to help someone, like say, say there's somebody in a far off country and he's got one cattle that feeds his family and it dies. How are you going to get help to you're going to give money to like Oxfam or something, and is it somehow going to end up that somebody goes and helps? And that is, it just isn't going to happen. That I think it could revolutionise charity giving because you could actually do a direct donation. So if that person all he needs is a wallet and a phone of some description and a QR code, and I could say, yeah, there's a hundred dollars by yourself account, and that family is now secure. That's something I think is so transformative. And I haven't seen it talked about very much. And that's a gigantic use case for Bitcoin that is just crying out to be promoted. I, I remember what Bitcoin did. Peter did a, a thing in El Salvador and he did a, a, a piece focusing on this, this men's sort of support group of people who'd had really difficult problems and talking about how much you know they need this support and that support. And then I was like, okay, in a closing credits, is he going to give their name so that I could help them? Do they have contact information for them? Can I give them $100 or, or something? Or can I say to people on Twitter, let's help these people and try and get 10 or 20 people to give them money? And he, did, he didn't put any contact information on. And I thought, from now on, people need to do that. If they've gone in and they've filmed people struggling, also put in, if you want to help this person, Here's their wallet. Here's their address. Send them some sats or something. That should be in everything from now on. I agree. I think Aubrey just did a beautiful piece about some surf school in South Africa. Yeah. And of course, had the addresses. And yes, you couldn't. That's good. <laughs> you couldn't not watch that 11 minute documentary and, yeah. and throw some sats their way. I think it's a big mistake to do coverage of people and not in a way to help. Because we can now. Yeah, of course, we really can. And it is beautiful. I just I helped a friend who's a filmmaker in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and uh, an opportunity of a lifetime presented itself, and it would have been impossible to try and send him dollars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Western Union or something. <laughs> oh, God. I had to repay somebody there once, and you know, an accidental hotel bill or something, and it was a month and a half and whatever. That's the legacy system. Bitcoin fixes that. Yeah. And as you were alluding to creatively to explore those themes of transformation, of hope, of direct charity, artistically, I think is going to be a new domain for folks. And we're going to have to, though, reignite the metaphorical mind of the viewer. Because I think we've been kind of bombarded, whether it's the TikTok generation or, or whatever, to look at an old painting and know that it was speaking metaphorically. I think because these ideas are so profound, these ideas like beauty or love, those require an allegorical mind. And that's been somewhat lost. So we're going to have to rekindle that too. And the arts are a good way to do it. Yes. It, the other thing I think uh, direct charity just... just uh, while while it's top of mind, sure, is it's a way for us who are thinking different to be the change that we want to make in the world. So we're actively seeking out people we can help. And you know, you know, I'm not rich by any stretch of imagination, but a hundred dollars in certain places is life changing. It contrasts with the sort of you know, the fiat world or wherever it's from. Well, the government needs to help those people. Or, you know, this charity needs to go in and help those people. I'll give them $100 and hopefully some of it will filter through. It's, it's passive. You do it once. You forget about it. You're not involved. You've no idea what they've done with your money, whether it gets there, uh, whether it's stolen or given in bonuses or, you know, a nice party or something. And so... It's a way to fight the sense of helplessness that the current world has with, where people just feel like it doesn't matter what I do. But it actually does. It only takes 3% of the population to say, no, I'm going to do things a different way. So change to start to happen. That's right. I'm a hodler, but I'll give that Bitcoin up for a good cause in a heartbeat. If we are part of that 3%, then so be it. I think we'll see more of it. I think it's in the human spirit to be generous. 
Yes. But we know we're cynics too because of a century of fiat nonsense. And also, at the moment, you're generous to people that you relate to. And at the moment, that can be as simple as, you know, what was your position on the vaccine or who you're going to vote for. So you're not going to give any charity to someone who's, you know, the wrong side of, of those arguments instead of just seeing people as, at the end of the day, we're all struggling at moment trying to do our best and we all want to do our best for our families and all that kind of thing. And yeah, the most wonderful thing I think in the last couple of years, uh, thinking about the Bitcoin thing, which I hadn't thought about before now is, you know, I grew up in Wales in the UK and it was a very sort of very homogenous kind of society. Everybody was white. Everybody went to chapel or church. Then I went to London and I, I met a lot more people and expanded out. Then I moved to Vancouver and that expanded again. But in the last two years, I, I'm interested in listening to people from countries I never even thought of, you know, in, in Latin America, in Central America, and people in Africa, like Ray Youssef. And, you know, I follow everything he comes out with. Oh my God, this is interesting, you know. And one of the best things about Bitcoin is it doesn't matter what country you're born in, you know, what you look like, your skin color or male, female, whatever. If you're saying something interesting, then people are going to listen to you. Yeah. I don't know if we've had that before. And we don't know how powerful that's going to be long term. You're right. And I think combined with something like Noster, Bitcoin and Noster, and we've got the foundation of a, of a brave and beautiful new world. Yes. I'll have to figure out Noster. I, I am on it. I just haven't posted anything yet. So. <laughs> well, it's a little intimidating since you can't delete. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll get my son to help me. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Gareth, really, I really appreciate you spending your time with me this afternoon. Oh, I, I've enjoyed myself. So uh, Great. And I think you've left a lot for folks to explore, to rethink, and to admire. So thank you. Ah, well, thank you for your time, and uh, I hope to do this again soon. All right. We'll be in touch. And you're my second artist from Wales, you and Rebel. Yes, I need to get to meet Rebel. So I didn't get to Miami. I'm hoping to get to Pacific Bitcoin. I can finish up these jobs and send them off so that they can, uh, Bracky can have a look at them. <laughs> well, well, now when, when I hear Bitcoin Wales, I'll just think of you two. Yeah. <laughs> all right thank you so much clay there you have it all of gareth's contact info and links to the various topics and tweets we discussed are in the show notes and on the gareth eckley page at the bitcoinnews.com please spread the word about my efforts marketing shenanigans like picking fights on twitter or engagement farming rubs me the wrong way i'm just head down making these podcasts and hoping it's sufficiently valuable that i reach a wider audience Anything you can do to help me along makes a difference. Thanks to my brother for his music, to you for listening and sharing, and to Gareth for sharing his time, energy, and expertise with the Bitcoin Muse. Onward.